Uh, I'm, I'm Mike Rutledge. I'm the director of arts here and um, really looking forward to sharing with you this morning. Today's message is not part of a series. Uh, it's just a message that uh, I'm really excited about giving this because it's just an opportunity for me to share something that I believe God laid on my heart uh, for our body here. And uh, so I'm really excited to uh, share this with you this morning. And we just finished two series. Uh, the Two series ago was uh, on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, understanding the Holy Spirit, how he works in our lives, and uh, how we can live a life uh, empowered by the Spirit and uh, living a Christian life that is powerful, by, not by our strength, but by the Spirit. And then last week, uh, Dave Nelson finished uh, the series uh, Discover You, where we looked at how God has uniquely designed and created each and every one of us, and that unique design is for our own benefit as well as the benefit of those around us, and look into understanding who we are and what our role is in the greater picture of the body of Christ. And uh, if you weren't here for those, uh, or you missed any of those, I just cannot encourage you strongly enough on the app or the website, whatever, go back and check out those messages because I believe that for us to live in victory as a follower of Jesus, we need those two things. Understanding who we are in the body of Christ and how the Holy Spirit wants to empower us to live the full life he intended us to live. And we're even, you'll, you'll even see today as we talk about this that living in the power of the Spirit is the only way we're going to do the things that God calls us to. So, um, but I, I don't know if you were here at the beginning of the service. If you weren't, you missed an amazing video by a band, The OK Go. And what's cool, the band is a really cool band. They write great songs, obviously. But what really put that band uh, on, on top of the market was their videos. If you, if you were here, you saw that the video, you may not have noticed, there were no cuts it's one camera shot beginning to end. So you can think of all of the choreography that went, went into that. And they were uh, riding on these things called Honda Unicubs, which aren't even available to masses right now. It's like a chair that has a mind of its own and one wheel. And uh, so they're riding those things around. The, the video was actually shot at a slower speed and then sped up. All the, all the dancing and the umbrella. Just, just an amazing video. And what's, what's interesting about that is the video is so amazing. You get to the end and all the umbrella stuff switching. Uh, you get to the end, and if you're not careful, you'll miss what they're singing about in the song because the video is so overwhelming. And what they're saying is pretty simple. Maybe all you need is someone to trust. Maybe all you need is someone, but I won't let you down. No, I won't let you down. And the truth of the matter is, in life, the people that we trust the most, those closest to us, our families, are probably the most likely to let us down. And, and not only are they the most likely to let us down, they're actually probably the most likely to replicate behaviors in us, like all the cr hashtag my crazy family stuff, right? All of that stuff gets passed on from, from, from generation to generation. You think about all the things that do get passed along. You hear expressions like, uh, he's a chip off the old block, or uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's a spitting image of, right? A few years ago, my family was, uh, our whole family went to Michigan. We try and get back there every few years. And uh, we were back in Michigan, and we were coming back across 80 uh, to come back to Utah. And my phone rings, and it's a number I didn't know I answered it. And it was my college roommate, really good friend of mine. I hadn't talked to him in 20 plus years. I don't know how he got my number. Uh, he said, Mike, it's Charles. That was his nickname. It's Charles. I'm like, holy smokes, good to hear from you. And I tell him we're in Michigan. We're driving back. He said, well, do me, he lives in Nebraska. And he said, do me a favor. Could you just pull off the road 
I'll meet you at a truck stop and let's say hi for five minutes. I'm like, absolutely. So we pull off and I'm introducing him to uh, my family and, you know, he, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen him since right around college and, and so I introduce all of, all of the kids and I introduce my son who unfortunately gets to the, this comment a lot and I said, and this is my son, Elijah, and he stands there, flat f- expression on his face says, that's not Elijah, that's my college roommate. See, we pass on things like DNA, we pass on uh, expressions, looks, uh, we, we, we pass on aptitudes, mannerisms, personality. All this stuff gets handed on from generation to generation. Parents hand things down. But in addition to those things, we also hand on the wackiness and a thing that we call dysfunction, right? We pass on the dysfunction. And dysfunction is really, it's kind of a word we don't like so much, but the reality is that dysfunction is really just deviation from the norms of social behavior that are bad. In in spiritual world, we would say anytime we're acting outside of God's intended design for our actions and behavior, we are acting dysfunctionally, and that's bad. And when we think about dysfunction, I just want to put a blanket statement out there today. When we talk about dysfunction, we're not only talking about the big things like addictions. We're talking about attitudes, behaviors, thoughts, relationships. These are all things that get handed down from parents to their kids. In the American, it's really interesting. If you're texting me, by the way, right now, please stop. It's very distracting when I'm speaking. That was kind of a joke, but really don't text me right now. Anyway, because <laughs> my pocket vibrates and I lose track. And, uh, anyway, the American Academy of Adolescent Psychiatry found this, that children of alcoholics are four times more likely to become alcoholics. And in marriage, if one of your parents is from a divorced family, you have a likelihood two times more to be divorced. And if both of your parents are divorced three times. Now, I'm not telling you this, so if you're feeling any condemnation or anything like that, I'm, t- I'm not, not putting any judgment on that. I'm just telling you that this is a statistical fact that we pass these things on to each other. And if we want things to change, we have to be different about it. And here's where it gets really, this is really interesting. I found this research this, this week as I was studying for this message that just blew my mind. This is important to us because of this fact. Just if two people get married and they have three kids and each of those kids gets married and has three kids and each of those kids get married and have three kids and each of those kids get married and have three kids. After 12 generations Do you know how many descendants will come from those original two people? 3,188,643 descendants. And so when we're passing on dysfunction and wackiness and all that craziness to over 3 million people, it becomes a pretty big deal, don't you think? What about you? Do you ever find yourself saying things like, oh my gosh, I sound like my dad? Or you find yourself doing things, you're like, oh, that's my mom. Or you see your kids, and you're like, oh, no, I hate when he does that, because that's me. See, it's a reality of life. Uh, I heard this story about 
pot roast. This family was eating a pot roast, and, uh, and uh, it was like, you know, the family secret pot roast. It was so delicious. And the, one of the kids said to the, to the mom, what's the secret, you know, to the pot roast? He said, well, you always cut it in half. And, and uh, so well, why do you do that? And she said, I don't know. That's just what mom told me to do. So she, well, let's call grandma and find out. So they call grandma and they say, so why, what's the secret of the pot roast? Why do you cut it in half? How does that affect the flavor? She says, I don't know. That's what my mom told me. So they call great-grandma and they say, what, what's the, why do you cut the beef in half? Like, what's the, what's the secret about the flavor? Oh, there's no secret about the flavor. I just had a really small pot. I couldn't fit the whole pot roast in. Four generations later, they're cutting the pot roast in half. But God's word has a lot to say about this, actually. And what it's called in the, in the Bible is generational sin or sins of the father. Not the pot roast part, but when we pass sins from one generation to the next. It's called generational sin. I want you to look at a verse with me. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. I want you to understand, I do not believe this is a threat by God. I think this is God defining the reality of life. That the stuff that we pass on in sin nature carries on for three and four generations. And it will continue unless someone in the family lineage says, this stops now and it stops with me. See, these things don't go away on their own. We have to actively resist them. And we're going to look at that today. That's what I want to do this morning in the time that we have. So I want to look through God's word and understand how we can avoid passing on generational sins or sins of the Father to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And replacing those with behavioral patterns that offer, what does it say? A thousand generations of unfailing love. Let me ask you something. Here in this room this morning, how many of you would prefer passing on a thousand generations of love to your descendants? Every single one of us. But the point is, it doesn't happen on its own. And I want to look at a guy that we find very early in the scriptures. His name is Joseph. And he set his mind to breaking the family tradition of dysfunction. And I want to look at why it's a case study in generational sin and how do we get to the place where we can say, this ends now, this ends with me. And I, again, I'm not just talking about addictions. I am talking about addictions. But I'm, not, I'm talking about behaviors, attitudes, thoughts, relationships, all of that stuff that gets handed down. In order to do that... We're going to start in Genesis, and the story is the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And you've probably heard bits and pieces of all their story, but Abraham is the patriarch of this family. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12, and the remaining part of the book traces the dysfunction of this family for four generations, just as we're told in Deuteronomy. From Genesis 12 to the end of the book, Genesis 50, it just runs through the life of their family and it shows us how Joseph breaks the chain. Look at this. So Abraham starts and he marries a real hottie. She's, boy, she's smoking good looking and there's famine in the land and he knows she's good looking and so he says, we've got to go to Egypt and get some food 
because because we have you know famine. We don't have any food. So he but he says you know what the thing is you're so good looking. If I take you there, uh, they're gonna. I know how those Egyptians are. They're going to take you and they're going to want to kill me. So he begins by deceiving and he says, we're going to tell them you're my sister because otherwise they're going to kill me. So he puts his life as more important than hers. Sure enough, he gets to Egypt. They, they tell the lie that it's, uh, that their sister and brother and, and the Egyptians go, yeah, she is a good looking girl. She's a looker. Let's immediately right into the Pharaoh's harem. Great. And so what happens, thank goodness, God sends a plague to the people of Egypt and eventually the Pharaoh goes, the reason is because I've taken a married man's, uh, I've taken someone's wife and brought him in my Pharaoh and he says, why didn't you just tell me the truth? He sets her free. But it doesn't stop there. Not only does he begin a pattern of deceit, he also has a pattern of favoritism that develops. And what happens is uh, Abraham is promised that he is going to have children, but they're just not having kids. And so they do what any logical person could do. You definitely want to use this methodology. You do all the time. You come up with a strategy to help God figure out how to complete his promise when he's failing. Right? You ever do that? Yeah, well, obviously he's not going to come through without my help. So the plan that they come up with is for Abraham to sleep with the maidservant, Hagar, and have a kid with her. And it works. And then later, Sarah gets pregnant as well, and she has her kid. You have Ishmael, and you have Isaac. And favoritism takes place because one day, Sarah sees Ishmael making fun of Isaac, and she says, we're done. She tells Abraham, throw him out. He's not sharing in the family. None of this. They're out. And so Abraham sends, it says, sends Ishmael and Hagar out to wander aimlessly in the wilderness. Just so you understand, dissension is the third thing he brought on because to this very day, Ishmael is the father of the Arab nation and Isaac is the father of the Jewish nation. Still at odds, still dissension. That began with Abraham. Now we go to Isaac, who's the next generation. He marries Rebecca. Again, famine hits the land. That's just an interesting fact that in all three of these, all four of these generations, they experience famine. And what happens is uh, Rebecca gets pregnant with twins, and the dissension starts even before they're born. We're told in Genesis 25, it says this Rebecca became pregnant with twins, but the two children struggled with each other even in her womb. They were fighting before they were born. Esau's born first, and Jacob is born second, holding on to the heel of Esau. No, not you first, me first. Dissension began before anything had happened. And then favoritism, Isaac loved Esau, and mom, Rebecca, loved Jacob. Jacob begins by conniving and continuing the deception. He lies and tricks his brother out of the birthright. And then mom joins and they come up with a master plan to steal the blessing of the firstborn from Esau as well because he's the favorite. Well, that works perfectly in reuniting those two, right? Twins are usually inseparable. That really brought the two of them together. Let me just tell you. The dissension grows so much then 
that we find Esau saying this, after the birthright had been stolen, no wonder his name is Jacob. Hebrew meanings, uh, means he, he stole what belonged to me, basically. For he has cheated me twice. Then from that time on, Genesis 27, from that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme, I will soon be mourning my father's death, then I will kill my brother. Generation two, deceit, favoritism, dissension. Now we have Jacob who actually marries, he wants to marry uh, Rachel, that's the love of his life, but he gets out huckstered by someone who's even a better deceiver. He works for seven years to marry her and, and they do some sort of fancy pants switcheroo at the wedding and he ends up marrying R- Rachel's sister. He has to give another seven years of servanthood to Laban so that he can marry Rachel. Now what happens is Rachel can't have kids. Ten kids are born, and finally Rachel gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin after that. But Joseph is the favorite in the family. Very clearly it says that, that, that Joseph, we, we see in Scripture Joseph was, was uh, Jacob's favorite. And to commemorate the favoritism, what he does is he makes a fancy bright-colored coat to give to Joseph to wear so that in case the older brothers forget that he's the favorite, he can walk around with, you know, this giant walking, talking, poking the eye to go, hey, remember me? Favorite. See the favorite jacket? Woo-hoo. Not only that, but Jacob's job, he's, or I'm sorry, Joseph's job is to go check on his brothers, some of who are like twice his age, as out in the field working, and he goes and he watches them, and then he has to come back and report to dad all the stuff they're doing wrong. Super helpful. Any of you have brothers and sisters that felt their role in your relationship was to inform mom and dad about everything you did wrong? Again, super unifying. And then to cap it all off, this is beautiful. Joseph has a couple dreams. And uh, the dreams go like this. And, and he feels it's important that he shares these dreams with his brothers. And, it, and the first dream is, uh, I think, uh, he goes, hey, guys, I just had this dream, I got to tell you. I was out in the field, and we were all, uh, like, like, you know, bundling uh, hay. And um, <laughs> cool, crazy thing, your bundles bowed down to me. <laughs> crazy, huh? What do you think of my coat? And then he has another one. He's like, sun, moon, and stars, they all bowed down to me. Even when he tells that one to them, his dad even goes, his dad reprimands him. like, what is wrong with you? Well, it gets to the point where there's such contention between the brothers, the 10 and Joseph, they can't take it anymore. And so dad sends them out to the field one day and he goes, go check on them and they'll report back what they're doing wrong. So he goes out to the field. They see him coming. They're like, we're done with this. We're killing him today. And so they go to kill him, but they decide, they throw him into a pit and they decide, hey, here's some Egyptian traders. Instead of killing him, let's just, let's just sell him to traders, to these Egyptian traders. Never to see Joseph again, or so they think. They take the coat, which is the very symbol of favoritism, the very thing that made him the special one, and they rip it up, they shred it, and they put blood on it, and they go, hey, favorite one, hey, dad, favorite one? Yeah, he's gone. Dad's crushed. But the story doesn't end there. See, what happens is that Joseph goes off to Egypt as a servant, 
And he serves very well. He's faithful in everything he does. And he ascends the ranks and he becomes an overseer in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was, the, was in charge of the, prison, or the uh, palace guard. And so he's serving under Potiphar at a very high level and everything's going great except for one thing. Potiphar's wife also thinks Joseph is pretty great. <laughs> so she's like, you, me, me, you, come on. And he's like, no, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this to Potiphar. He's been good to me. But she pressures him. She's coming after him. She keeps coming after him. And she, she, at one point she grabs his coat. Come on, let's go. I want to have sex with you. And he's like, no. And so he just runs, leaves his coat and runs out and she screams rape. He goes to jail for two years for doing the right thing. And while he's in jail, these guys in the jail have a dream and he interprets the dream and they're like, crazy. He's in jail for two years and then eventually the Pharaoh has a dream that no one can, no one can interpret. And the guy that was in jail with him who'd been released goes, I know a guy who can actually might, might be able to interpret this. His name's Joseph. So they bring Joseph out of jail and Joseph interprets the dream and the dream is, well, you're gonna have seven years of good and then you're gonna have seven years of famine. They put Joseph as the second in charge to Pharaoh. He ascends the ranks, and because of God's grace, he reaches a really high level. Remember that famine that kept recurring? Well, it happens again. And the brothers are sent to come to Egypt to get food, just like Abraham had done. And they come not knowing anything about Joseph being second in charge at this point. And they come before Joseph to ask for provisions. And this is the point where Joseph decides he's going to break the cycle. And I want to share with you four things, four, not three, two, or one, four things that I think we need to do if we want to break the cycles of generational sin in our life. And the first is this. We need to weep. Some of us just need to weep over bad things that have happened to us. Some of you in this room have had horrific, unspeakable things that should not have happened to you, and they did. Some of us have done terrible things that we can't forgive ourselves for. And we need to call it what it is and we need to weep over it. Some of us are beginning patterns that we're going to pass on to our next generation if we don't make a turn in the road. And we need to weep over what we're doing. We find this in the passage. Joseph weeps four different occasions upon meeting his brothers. The first time they come, they don't know who he is, and he kind of is running them around a little bit because I think he's stirred up with what's going on inside of him. And then he, he, he overhears them talking because, remember, he's Jewish, and they're speaking in their language, and they don't know that the Egyptian can understand them. And Reuben, the oldest brother, says this. He says, oh, you guys, this is because of what we did to Joseph, all this stuff, because he thinks they're going down. And it says that he hears this and he goes off to find a place to weep. I think he started to see something in Reuben. And I'll tell you I, what else I think is that the emotions were so overwhelming. Scientists tell us that memories of a painful experience in our life actually recreate the original emotions 
and intensify them. Research also has found that emotions of a replayed memory are as vivid and as real as the original emotion. And I think all these years later, Joseph finds himself in a situation looking at the guys who were going to kill him and they sold him off to Egyptian slavery and the wave of emotion was intensified and he had to find a place to cry. And for some of you, you haven't done that about the things that have happened in your life. And today's the day for that to happen. Second time he cries is when his brother Benjamin comes back because the first time he came, now Benjamin was the replacement favorite when Joseph left. And dad wouldn't send Benjamin with him because he couldn't bear it. He said, if something happens to Benjamin, I'm going to die. And so they go, and when he sees Benjamin, I think he starts to see, oh my goodness, Benjamin's still alive. He's the one brother that didn't hate me. He says to him, God bless you. And he's overcome with emotions to the point where he has to run out of the room and find a secret place to cry. Because the experience is coming back to him. The third time he cries, Judah actually, so, so Joseph says, okay, I'm going to send you back and you're going to come back with your dad and but you're going to leave Benjamin here. Remember, dad said, if you leave Benjamin here, if, if you lose Benjamin, I'm going to die. So he says, no, you're going to leave Benjamin. And Judah says in this moment, no, 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 no. I will offer my life over Judah. And I think for the first time, he started to see that his brothers were finally thinking of others, not just themselves. And this turn in thinking and these patterns make him cry. And then what happens is he decides he's going to reveal himself to them and he clears the room. He says, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. And it says his sobs could be heard throughout the entire palace. His sobs could be heard through the entire palace because of the emotion that hit him. And the final time he cries is when his brothers finally ask for forgiveness which is the second thing. Not only do we need to weep over the past, we need to forgive and be forgiven. Some people have done horrible things to you. Your parents have passed down things intentionally and unintentionally. And we need to forgive them and understand they're broken people just like we are. And some of us have been perpetuating these generational sins from our grandfather and our great-grandfather and our parents. And we need to forgive ourselves. Dante said this in his epic poem, The Inferno. Hell is for people who live in the past. And I'm just telling you that many people sitting in this room today are living in hell because the people we need to forgive, we can't offer the forgiveness to, and we're still victims of what happened to us. And you will never be set free from your own personal hell until you can forgive yourself or the person who has done something wrong to you. You will continue to be their victim or your own victim. Time heals all wounds, right? Not at all. Time gives us the opportunity to intensify the wounding that happened or deal with the wounding and get closure on it. That's all time does. I'm just wondering in my own mind, what name could I mention right now that starts the tape reel rolling in your head? Takes you back to the terrible place where those emotions come racing back. Script starts all over because we all have them. What experience could I mention 
something you've been involved in, something you've done, something that's been done to you. Look at Genesis chapter 50, verses 17 through 21. He says this. These are his brothers talking to him. Genesis chapter 50, the final chapter. 38 chapters of the first book of the Bible dedicated to this family. Chapter 50 says this. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. I, am I God that I can punish you? You intended harm, but God intended it all for good. All in the pit, in the prison. God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many. Do not be afraid of me. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. He forgave. The third thing we need to do is commit. Commit to doing what is right. Not what feels right, but what is right. Joseph did right before Potiphar. He did right with Potiphar's wife. He did right when he was in charge of the palace. He did right when he was in charge of Egypt, and he did right even in jail. And let me just give you a little time frame that helps you understand this. He was sold into slavery when he was only 17 years old. 13 years later, at 30, he is put, he's made overseer in the palace. And then at 39, his brothers come for the first time, 22 years later. 24 years later, when he's 41, 24 years later, his father and his, all of his brothers are back before him. He has every ability. He's got the power to exact the justice on these jokers who tried to off him. See, that would be repeating the patterns of dissension and favoritism that have been before him. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use the powers that God has given me to bring restoration and life back to my family. He does right. And he says, no, don't be afraid of me. I'll continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. He's like, uh-uh, don't fear me. You've nothing to fear. I bring restoration. I'm not going to live like you guys. And there seems to be indication that they kind of continue to do some of this stuff, but not him. He said, I refuse to continue the cycle of dysfunction in our family. I instead choose to act as God designed me to act. I will honor him. It stops now. It stops now. He used his power to restore. The fourth thing we need to do is this. We need to believe. We need to believe in God's sovereignty. Sovereignty just means he's the supreme ruler. He's in charge. He's not caught off guard. He knows what's going on. He actually controls the outcomes of things when he, it's up to him. And we find this really, really interesting expression that happens over and over when we look at the life of Joseph. He says this in Genesis 39 2, the Lord was with Joseph. 
So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of the Egyptian master. 39.3, Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Moses, or Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. 39.21, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison. What? What do you mean in prison? How is the Lord with you in prison? He got falsely accused and thrown into prison and he still honored God and he understood the sovereignty of God because God was still with him even in the dark place. And so for many of us, when the bad stuff happens, we're like, I'm out because God doesn't care about me clearly. But he understood that God had a bigger plan than the immediate moment. He says, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to prosper. And the profound, life-changing statement that Joseph makes to his brothers that shows he believed in the sovereignty of God, we find in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, right near the very end of this book. And it says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. The prison, the pit, all of it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And in fact, he did not only bring restoration to his family, he saved the Egyptian people. He saved the Israelites through his position and planning for the famine. No matter where Joseph was, God was with him. God was in charge, and he was just going to do the right thing and follow God's plan. And he, after seeing four generations of dysfunction, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his brothers, he says, this stops now. I love this verse again. 5023. So Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph lived to the, to the age of 110. He lived to see three generations of descendants of his son Ephraim. And he lived to see the birth of the children of Manasseh's son, whom he claimed as his own. He lives to see, remember I said in Deuteronomy, remember I read that? A thousand generations of unfailing love promised blessing when we honor God, which is exactly what Joseph did. He actually lives to see four of those generations in his lifetime of a changed behavioral pattern within the family and a generation that's honoring God in a different way. And don't miss it, he named his son Manasseh. You know what Manasseh means? to forget or to remove the sting from a memory. What I want to do right now is I want to invite a friend, Terry, to share. She has a story of generational sin even within her own family, and I've asked her if she'd be willing to share, and she's going to share her life path through this. Dear Anger and Alcohol, you have taken too much from my life. You came to me through the generations, my father, my father's father, and more. Over the years that you have been my master, I have sinned against you and my children, my children who are not to blame, have seen your ugliness. I weep. 
I weep. The things that you have done to me and those who went before me are hard, hard lessons. I weep for my father and my father's father that they never knew life without you. I weep for my children that they will not have to live with you as their masters. The hurt you caused me, even as a little girl, I still remember. You came through my father and my father's father. His anger was frightening. I lived every day afraid of what would happen when you showed up. But I forgive, I forgive my father. He was only doing what he had learned from his father. I forgive him for making me afraid. I forgive him for screaming and yelling. And I forgive him for whipping me with a belt when I was two years old because he thought I was the one who poked holes in the chair seat. I forgive him for the terror that I lived in until I was able to leave home at 18. He was just doing what he learned. I will choose today to begin living without you. My children will not see you in me. They will, grow, they will not grow any older seeing their mother in chains to you. Today, I take my first step into freedom. From this day forward, I will learn to live one day at a time in a way that is honoring to God and to my children. I will break this chain of sin, anger, and alcohol. Jesus Christ is my Father. He is the one who has the power to change my life and the lives of my children. He is sovereign over me and you, alcohol and anger. I lay you at his feet. I let him take you away, and I choose to live his life, his will for my life which doesn't include you. From now on, my children will look at me and instead of seeing you, they will see him. He is the Lord of my life. Thank you. We're gonna transition into time of musical worship as we close out this morning and I just want to ask you guys today because I feel like this the time we're going to spend right now in musical worship making declarations about what we believe and what we desire in our life is as impactful and if you have an emergency I say it's okay go but please I'm just asking you to stay and worship with us in this last few minutes because here's the question for all of us to answer Who are you in this story? When you think through the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, are you beginning generational patterns that you're handing down to your kids? Like Abraham? Are you like Isaac and Jacob? You're kind of in the middle, you receive some stuff, and rather than fighting against it, you're just going to let it flow through the next generation? Or maybe you realize that 
Today's the day it stops. I'm going to be Joseph. I'm going to weep. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to commit to doing what's right. I'm going to believe that God is sovereign even when I don't feel like he's sovereign and I don't feel him in my presence and I don't know what's going on in my life. But it stops here today. I just want you to, again, just if you're feeling any sense of condemnation from what I'm saying, I want you to wipe that from your memory. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus but I pray that God would send a holy conviction and awareness to the areas in our lives that are broken and we're replicating in those around us. That we would commit to changing those ways for the glory of God and the good of our 3,188,000 descendants one day. A thousand generations of blessing, of unfailing love promised by following him. Just remember this, wherever you are, whether it's something done to you or something you've done, God's grace is sufficient for you. His grace covers a multitude of sins. And the very second you say, forgive me, guess what? You are forgiven right then. Not in a week, a month, a year, right then. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you call us to follow you. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us need to weep and forgive and commit to doing what is right and understand that you are sovereign in our lives and you have a bigger plan than even we are aware of. Today is not a day of sadness. Today is a day of celebration because from this day forward, I commit to changing the patterns and I replace the negative with the positive. My legacy will be a thousand generations of blessing because of my obedience to you. Today's not a day of despair. It is a day of hope. When I look at all that you can do, I believe, and I lay down my burdens, I come to you just as I am, broken, flawed, and sinful, and I ask you to break every chain. Heavenly Father, as I just look out across this congregation, I just pray a prayer of blessing on every single person here. Reveal yourselves to us. May your spirit move in our hearts and stir within us the things that we need to address. May you change us. May we not leave this building this morning being the same as we were when we came in, but committed to changing the patterns that are taking us in the wrong direction. May we receive your love and grace. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.